I will be reading from Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you, at, why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nate. As you know, during this uh, series, we've been having a psalm of lament uh, that has been uh, read before the, the text that we're going to look at. So go over to Lamentations chapter 4, which is page 689, if you're using one of the Bibles uh, provided for you there. Um, it's just good to be reacquainted with some of those psalms of lament, and uh, it goes along with with what we're, we're talking about in studying this book of Lamentations. As you turn to Psalm, or excuse me, uh, Lamentations 4, uh, let me tell you a quick story. When I was 17 years old, I had the opportunity to spend a few weeks in Europe uh, traveling. Uh, we landed in Amsterdam, and we went across the continent over to Hungary, uh, and then uh, we came back, and it was a it was a great trip. We were able to see you know all sorts of cities and things like this. It was it was quite amazing, actually. Um, it was there where I learned that Budapest is actually two cities on each side of a river in Hungary. But the 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 part of the trip I think that was most surprising to me uh, was when we were in Germany. Um, I was amazed at the beauty of the country in, in Germany there. I remember there was one story uh, or one morning, I, I, it was just absolutely breathtaking because we, we had arrived where we were sleeping at night. We, had tra- we were traveling by bus for a long time and then it was dark for a long time. We got there, we got settled in, it was dark. And so the, the morning came, and I got up, and I, I left where we were staying, and I, and I walk out, and I just stopped because, you know, right in front of me, and I had not known it, was the Bavarian Alps right there. And it was like, whoa. Now, we have some good hills in Michigan where I grew up, but uh, nothing like this, right? I mean, it literally took my breath away, like, whoa. Um, I wish this were the picture uh, at that time. I did not take a picture, but this is something that I just took off the, uh, of, you know, uh, a picture sharing site. But it was just a breathtaking. You stand down there and you just see these, these massive rocks and these massive, you know, mounts. It's just absolutely breathtaking. Um, and then actually part of a, when we traveled into Berlin uh, was, uh, was surprising to me. And again, you got to remember, I'm 17 years old here. And um, the only image in my mind about Berlin that I had was World War II pictures. 
And so I guess I was expecting, I, guess, I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but in my mind maybe I was expecting to, to land in Berlin and then a, you know, a bunch of just bombed out buildings or something like this. And that's not what is there. It was, it's an absolutely beautiful city. It's, it's, it's gorgeous. And so as we were there, it was amazing. Of course, you know, Germany's famous for New Schwanstein. This is the castle that Walt Disney modeled his uh, Magic Kingdom after. I visited, I toured it. Um, you know, these are all the sites that as a 17-year-old, I was able to see there, and it was really a trip of a lifetime, and I was so grateful for it. But one day, we had a more sobering visit, and we visited a concentration camp called Dachau. And maybe you've read about Dachau. Dachau is, uh, there's this, I'm not going to get into all the atrocities that happened there. I'm not going to get into how terrible it was, um, the horror that was there, um, but you know, okay, you know. Uh, it's interesting right there on the gate here, um, this, this, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. If you want a pronunciation, see Wayne afterwards. But uh, this, uh, it's, it's translated as I'm told, work will set you free. Work will make you free. And those was an empty promise, of course, to people who walked or were forced to walk through those gates during World War II. It was a terrible thing. I, I had the opportunity to, to, to meet a survivor and talk with him through an interpreter. Had my picture taken with him. I looked all through my pictures yesterday at home from the trip and, you know, trying to find it, and I couldn't find that picture. Uh, I did find someone who my children did not recognize because he was a lot skinnier and had a lot more hair. Um, but um, I could not find this picture of me talking with a survivor. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, here's the reason why I bring this up. Because after the U.S.-led Allied forces came into concentration camps like Daco, often what they would do after they liberated the prisoners there is that they would bring the civilians of the nearby cities and they would bring them into the concentration camps. And they would say, you got to see what happened here. You have to see this for your own eyes. Because it is so bad that you will not believe it if we only tell it to you. And so they would march people through and the civilians to see the horrors of the sins of their country. Last week we looked at Lamentations chapter 3. It's the high point. Great is thy faithfulness. It's really good. And we've kind of, you know, chapter one and two of Lamentations, it's, it's really difficult. But then you get to chapter three, and you're like, oh, God is great. God is faithful, and this is good, and there's hope there. In fact, he takes, you know, three times as long as he's normally in these poems of these acrostics to, to, to tell the story, right, about God's faithfulness and hope and things like this. And so we very excitedly turn the page to chapter four to say, what is next for us? And we get... How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed, the holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. Verse 2 of Lamentations 4, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of potter's hands. And this goes on. Then we get to like something like verse 4, which is really, really tough to read. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, and no one gives it to them. Verse 6, the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom. He says that it's even worse than Sodom. Now, why is he doing this? 
Why is he doing this? Is because if chapter 3 was a highlight of the story, the first half of chapter 4 brings us back to the horrors of sin and judgment, just like these civilians were brought back. And say, okay, this happened here. And so chapter 4 brings us back to this. So as I said this, the first half of chapter 4 brings us back to the horrors of sin and judgment. I've already shown you a few of these verses. Verse 6, let me go back to that. It's basically it's saying that Sodom had it easy in comparison uh, in terms of punishment. Because at least while it was total, total destruction, it was over instantaneously. It was over quickly. It was overthrown in a moment, verse 6, and no hands were wrung for her. It's just, this is what, what, what the poet here is telling us, is saying that this is absolutely terrible. And if verse 4 was really difficult to read, and it is, verse 10 is worse. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I mean, it's just unfathomable. And who was doing this? This wasn't just terrible people necessarily. I mean, we're all sinners, but this was, how was it this person described here? They're described as compassionate people. This is how bad this was. And then verse 11 says, completing the first half of this chapter, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. And he poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion and consumed its foundations. So, we've said before, and we've said it at every sermon, I want to make sure we say it again here, that this is a very specific historical event, and things led up to that that God judged them for. So we cannot read this and say, okay, and make a straight line and say, okay, then this exactly is going to happen to us. But we can still take the principles of what sin does and, we can say, and this is what we've been talking through. We can talk about, though, that there are ways that we can have hope here, but we have to realize what is happening here. So if, first, if the first half of chapter 4 brings us back to the horrors of sin and judgment that I've just quickly gone through here, it's the second half that is going to answer two real crucial questions for us today. Okay? And that's going to frame our, our sermon today. And these are the two questions. How did we get here? Have you ever been in a situation where all of a sudden you're looking like, how did we get here? <laughs> you know, um, this is the question. In, in the second half of this chapter, the poet answers that question. And then, as true to form to a lament, where hope can be found. Where is hope to be found in a situation like this? So those are the two questions that the second half is going to answer for us. It's going to frame our, the rest of our time together in the sermon here. Uh, you know, how do we get here and where is hope to be found? Let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll try to seek the answer to those two questions from this text. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to look at your word. It's not easy to look at some of these things, um, but it's necessary. And so as we go through this sermon series here on Lamentations, Lord, I pray that we would see sin as you see it. I pray that we would be very serious about the sin in our lives that we would repent and we would forsake those sins. Um, but Lord, we would pray that we would rest in your hope. And we pray that this time together in this chapter would be, would be helpful to us. I pray that the comments that I share, that the, the sermon that I preach here would be uh, faithful to the text, to be led by your spirit and to be helpful for those who are listening, God. 
and helpful to my own soul as well, of course. So God, we just ask for your blessing. We ask that you'd remove distractions, and we pray that you would, be, uh, you would have preeminence, as we've already talked about today. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. All right, how do we get here? This question is, we look at verse 12, and it says this. It says, The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. So there's really three things that are three uh, uh, clues that we get about how Israel got to where they were with the destruction of Jerusalem and all the horrors that went along with it. And the first one was ignored warnings, ignored warnings. The kings, the people who were, who were supposed to be leading, the people who were supposed to be ruling, they did not. They didn't believe. It says there, it says, nor did in heaven's world that they did not believe that foe or enemy enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They didn't think it was possible. They had no uh, thought that it was possible. And it's kind of like, you know, these warning lights that, that come up, but they're ignored. And, 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 and maybe you have some of those. Maybe you drive a vehicle around that has some warning lights on. Well, maybe you do. And you are of the category that think, well, if it gets really bad, it'll start blinking. Or if it gets really bad, it'll start buzzing or something. Okay, I'll just tell you that's not the case. That's not how it's going to work. But feel free, okay? Um, maybe some of you are ones that love when the gaslight warning indicator, the low one gets on. You say, we've got, how many miles do you think you have left? 30, 50, 80, 100, <laughs> you know. So how many of you, I'm just curious, just, how many of you are, when the warning light comes on, it's like, okay, we got more time. You that way? Okay. All right. How many of you don't let it like to go below a quarter? You know, you're okay. All right. Okay. You know, how many of you just prefer to walk? No, I'm teasing. Okay. So, so the, yeah, I mean, you know, these warning lights come on, but sometimes we ignore them. And I remember I, I, I worked, I think maybe I've told the story before, there was a, a short time in my life where I managed a very small uh, used car lot. And uh, several years ago, and I, um, uh, there was a guy who wanted to sell his vehicles kind of on commission there, and the owner allowed him to do so, and so he brought a vehicle in. And so when I was looking at the vehicle, putting the price on it, things like that, um, there, was a, there was a warning light on. And so I told the owner of the vehicle, I said, hey, you got a warning light on. He said, oh, I know, I know. Just put some black electro electrical tape over it. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. He's like, it's not a big deal. It's just a sensor. It's not a big deal. Just put it over. It's not a big deal. And so he and I went back and forth on this. And you know, I said, I'm not doing it. And I didn't do it. Okay. You, it's ignoring the problem, right? Okay. Or maybe you're the category of like you hear the funny noise in the vehicle. It's like, turn the radio up. <laughs> just, just turn the radio. You, you, you like to, you don't want to, you want to deal with it and stuff. That's kind of what was happening here. There was a lot of warnings that were happening and the kings and the leaders, they just flat out ignored over the years. Jeremiah 25 says this, it says, for 23 years, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Abnon, king of Judah, to this day the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You know, one of the benefits of studying Lamentations is that you're going to understand Jeremiah so much better. Jeremiah is what led up to the event, and Lamentations is the response to the event, to the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jeremiah has said that for 23 years, he warned them and warned them and warned them. 
and they did not listen. Just the next chapter over in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, it says this. It says, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord, all that I've commanded you to speak to them. Do not hold back a word. It may be that they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may relent of the disaster that I intend to do them because of their evil deeds. And so we have to say, go stand where, where they're gathering and where they're getting together. He says, just tell them and warn them that they've got to turn away. And of course, we know they didn't. In Jeremiah chapter 36, there's the story I told you a couple weeks ago of the burning of the scroll. Jeremiah couldn't go because he was barred from the temple, and so he sent someone. They take the temple, they take, or they take the message, the scroll, back to the king, and they're reading it to the king. This warning, this warning that God is going to judge them. And what did the king do? The king is, just like it says in verse 12, the kings of the earth did not believe that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. And so what do they do? In their pride and their arrogance, they cut. He just cut the scroll and put it into the fire. They read the line. They laugh. He cut it, throw it into the fire over and over again. They did not listen. They did not listen. Ignored warnings. How did they get here? How did we get to chapter 4 where it talks about the, 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 the terror and the horrors that we read about there? Is because warnings were ignored. But the warnings even started before Jeremiah. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, look at this. It says this. He's talking about if you do not obey, the judgment's going to happen. He says this is in the very beginning. He says it's going to be so bad that you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in distress with which your enemies shall distress you. I mean, way back in Deuteronomy, God said if you turn away from me, it's going to get so bad that you're going to be cannibalistic towards your own family. And what did we read in verse 10 of chapter 4 here? It's just ignored warning over and over again. You see, Israel did not think it was possible for God to allow an enemy to enter the gates of Jerusalem, overthrow the city, and destroy the temple. They thought it, it was not possible. But God said it is possible, and he warned them. And he warned them. And he warned them. Can, one of the things that we can take away from this is we can see that God gave them plenty of chances. God warned them back in Deuteronomy. He warned them all for 23 years through Jeremiah's ministry here over and over again. So ignored warnings. How do we get here? Ignored warnings. So what do we take away from this? I think the application is fairly obvious. We get warnings all the time. We see the scriptures. We, we hear sermons. We, hear, uh, we, we sing songs that teach us truth. And, and, and God's given us a conscience. And we ignore it over and over again. So I think if we look at this point here that they didn't think it was possible, I think one thing that we need to take away from this is that we can never presume on the patience of God. We should never presume on the patience of God. Romans chapter 2 says this. It says, And do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, sometimes you know, we, we get into a certain lifestyle where we're, we're, we're living our own way and we're, we're, we're living according to our standards and our, what we want to do and our sin, and we're not seeing the effects. We're not seeing the judgment come. And so what do we do? We think it's just not possible that God would do something like and judge us in this. 
But don't you see what, what Romans says? It says that God's kindness and his patience towards you is meant to lead you to repentance, not to solidify your sin and solidify your standing in your sin. And so we have this, what do we take away from this? We have this, 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 this warnings here that we must heed. They got here because they did not listen to warnings. So what warnings could we be ignoring today? He uses his word. He uses your conscience, the church. He uses pastors as warning lights here. So read the word, inform and calibrate your conscience. Be an active part of the church, allowing each other to influence each other for good. Listen to your pastors. You know, we're not perfect, but we do want what is best for you in your spiritual life. Hebrews chapter 13 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you know when, as a pastor, do you know when there's groaning? It's when we see people that just do not listen to the warnings in the scriptures. And they continue down a path. They continue a life of bad decision-making and self-centeredness. And the warnings go ignored. That brings sorrow to us. But far more important than that, than any sorrow to the pastors, it's terrible for you, which that's how the verse ends, but also it's dishonoring, most importantly, it's dishonoring to God. So how did they get here? Well, warnings. They ignored the warnings. But that wasn't the only thing. Verse 13 goes on. It says, for this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of righteousness. So not only was there ignored warnings, but there was ungodly leadership as well. And we could couple that with the kings as well. But it seems that in the spiritual realm here, the prophets and the priests, there was ungodly uh, a leadership here. There was unspiritual leadership here for them. It's interesting when you see in verse 12 and 13, you see king, you see prophet, and you see priest. And, and these were kind of the three offices that were set up by God um, to, to rule the people. So we had uh, the prophet who was the one that spoke on behalf of God for the people. And so this is why Jeremiah, you, we read in Jeremiah chapter 26 where the Lord said to Jeremiah, write these words down and speak it to them. That was the prophet's job. The prophet's job was to take the word of the Lord. This was before the, the Bible was complete, of course. And so you would get the message from the Lord and he would give it to the people. The priest, on the other hand, had the opposite responsibility. The priest was the one who represented the people to God. So where the prophet represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. And the, he offered the sacrifice for them. And so we had this mediatory work here between prophet and priest. And then the king came into the scene because Israel wanted a king. And the king was to rule with the delegated authority that God gave them. And so there's a lot of mediatory offices here of prophet, priest, and king. And what Lamentations 4 is telling us is that they were all bad. How did we get here? Well, it's because of bad leadership, ungodly leadership here. Jeremiah 23 says this. It says in verse 16, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. They had a job to warn the people. 
and they failed. Maybe there's pressure. Maybe it's, in fact, I'm telling you, it's an unpopular message to give. People do not like, I'm just going to be honest with you, people generally do not like it when you tell them that they're living in sin, okay? Most times, people don't respond to that with, you know, I just want to tell you, I so appreciate you pointing out how I'm failing. I so appreciate that. That's just so, I mean, that's just, people don't usually respond that way. Sometimes they do, but often that's not the case. And it is very easy for a leader, spiritual leader, to shy away from saying truth and speaking truth. But we cannot do that. Because this is how, well, what happens is it affects people and affects people negatively. And here, God, um, the reason why they got here is because of ungodly leadership. Back in, in, in Jeremiah 26, so go ahead and turn back to Jeremiah 26, if you would, just for a second here. In Jeremiah 26, this is page 654. Um, uh, Jeremiah 26, I just want you to see this again, okay? that this is happening more and more, uh, or it happened um, um, often is what I meant to say. In verse, um, I already read the first part of this uh, in the last point where it says, it may be that they listen and turn from his evil way. Um, In verse 6 it says, um, uh, well, verse 4, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law that I have set before you and to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priest and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then who? The priest and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him saying, you shall die. You shall die. So Jeremiah preaches the word. Jeremiah gives the message from God. And it's not only just like the people, it is the priest. It is the other prophets who are saying, you will die. You have prophesied, verse 9, you have prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying this house shall be like Shiloh, and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Drop down. Uh, actually, I continue verse 10. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and took their seat in the entry of the new gate of the house of the Lord. Then the priest and the prophets said to the officials and all the people, this man, Jeremiah, deserves the sentence of death because he prophesied against this city as you have heard with your own ears. They were accusing him of blasphemy because he was telling them, what was going to happen because they did not think it was possible for God to judge the precious city of Jerusalem. And you know, we can get into all the reasons why and you can understand some of where they're coming from but the reality is when a prophet like Jeremiah stood before them and he said, you've got to turn away from this, they chose to follow the ungodly leaders. They chose to follow the ones who were telling the message that they wanted to hear, not the message they needed to hear. It's... Jeremiah is spared from death here. He does not die here. He will be imprisoned later on. But look at verse 20 of Jeremiah 26. There was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. Uriah, the son of uh, Shemaiah, uh, from some name that I can't pronounce, he uh, prophesied against the city 
and against this land in words like those of Jeremiah. And when the king Jehoiakim, with all of his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid and fled and escaped to Egypt. Then King Jehoiakim sent to Egypt certain men. Moving on, it goes on, and it says he struck him with a sword, dumped his dead body in the burial place of the common people. So while Jeremiah, the prophet, escaped death, there was another faithful prophet you named Uriah who did not escape death. These people chose to follow, to be ungodly leaders, and, to, and the people chose to follow ungodly leaders. How did we get here? How did we get so bad when we read in Lamentations 4 of all the things that happened? Well, it was because there was ungodly leaders who were, who were telling people what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. Look at verse 14 of Lamentations chapter 4, back in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 14, talking about the priests and the prophets. It says, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that, that one was able to touch, that no one was able to touch their garments. Verse 15, away, unclean people cried to them, away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, thou shalt stay with us no longer. It was the people who were supposed to have visual, uh, spiritual vision of the prophets. They were blind, it says here. The people who decided who would be clean or unclean, the priests, they themselves were so unclean that no one could touch them, is what the poet is getting at here. How do we get here? Ignored warnings, ungodly leaders. But you know, if 2 Timothy chapter 4 says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have, it, have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We have to be a church that preaches the word and says truth to the word. If it's popular in our society or not. And that is not always an easy thing. It, it's easy, you know, it's easy for someone to say, yeah, we need you to go tell that message. <laughs> And I want to be that person to do that, but it is sure a whole lot easier when I know that we are rock solid together as a church on that, and the other elders would agree. And so we need to be a church that is always about the truth of God's word, and we're standing for truth. So who are you listening to? Who are the influential voices in your lives? Pray for your leaders. Before I move on to the third reason of, of why, of how we got here, of answering that question, I have to pause, though, for a second. I have to pause here because I have to make this connection. We've talked about these mediatorial offices of king, prophet, and priest, and how they were all bad. But God did raise up one who was perfect, who was the perfect king, the perfect prophet, and the perfect priest, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's who we follow that's our godly leader that we follow as a church. We follow Jesus of Nazareth. He's the perfect prophet, priest, and king. So there was missed warnings or there were uh, ignored warnings. There were ungodly leaders answering the question, how did we get here? One other uh, uh, reason that this chapter gives us is misplaced hope. Verse 17, look at verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. For those of you who are in the college sports world, uh, football, you'll know that Texas A&M uh, made a coaching change this last week. 
uh, Jimbo Fisher was their coach. He was previously the coach at Florida State, led him to a championship in 2014. In 2018, Texas A&M hired Jimbo. That's a cool name, by the way. Hired Jimbo in 2018 to a 10-year uh, contract for a mere $75 million. Um, Prior to the 2021 season, the Texas A&M Boards of Regents voted to extend Fisher's contract through the 2031 season. Beginning January 1st, Fisher was paid $9 million a year. Now, he had worked it into his contract that if he were to be fired without cause before December 1st, 2021, he would have been owed $95 million, which is a buyout clause. As was part of the original contract in 2018, if Jimbo, though, decided to leave Texas A&M for any other coaching position, he would not owe any money to the school. Moral of the story is get Jimbo Fisher's negotiating lawyer in that because that's a great contract for him. Okay, So last week, Texas A&M fired him. And remember that buyout clause? He owes him. They owe Texas A&M owes him over $77 million. The best job in the world is a fired head coach in college sports. I will pay you $77 million not to come to work. Who would sign up for that, right? They had placed all their hope on a coach, and it did not work out, and it ended up costing them $77 million just to say goodbye. That's crazy. It's absolutely insane. But the point is, is that there's misplaced hope there. They had hoped for a championship and it did not come. We know that Israel's kings placed their hope in other places than Yahweh during this. That's what verse 17 is alluding to. So verse 17, when it says, Our eyes failed, ever watching, vainly for help, and are watching, we watch for a nation which could not save. That's a historical reference. As a poet that's making, uh, uh, in his poetry, a reference to historical fact that Israel, during this time, they were looking to Egypt for help, and it never came. There's a first century Jewish uh, Roman historian called Josephus, And he wrote this about this event, and I put it up here so you can follow along because it's a longer quote. In the fourth year, this is Josephus writing in the first century. In the fourth year, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Necho. He conquered him, took Syria from him, held up the land of Pelusium, with the exception of Judea. Then he advanced on the Jews and threatened to destroy the country unless Jehoiakim paid him tribute. Alarmed, Jehoiakim purchased peace for three years. So he paid him tribute. We read about this in 2 Kings, by the way, 2 Kings 24. Um, let's see here, where am I at? Alarmed, uh, but then here that Nebuchadnezzar was about to fight the Egyptians. So he did not pay his tribute, hoping the Egyptians would be victorious. The prophet Jeremiah repeatedly warned him against putting trust, any trust in the Egyptians, but it was in vain. Jeremiah foretold that Jeremiah, the Jerusalem would be overthrown by the king of Babylon, who would take Jehoiakim captive. Okay, so this happened. So then what happens is there's the siege that comes. Ne- uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes the city, but he, he puts in another king in its place and says, okay, and this was kind of what they did back then. Was, okay, you, you can rule, keep going, and rule. Well, then that king, he made the same mistake. This is another, just continuing with Josephus. Zedekiah was, been, was put in place as king. After he'd been king for eight years, he broke his pledge. 
Um, uh, Acts 108, that's actually a reference to the document. Sorry, I meant to take that out. So um, he broke his pledge to Nebuchadnezzar and allied with the king of Egypt who was fighting against Babylon. So again, looked to Babylon for help, uh, or, or looked to Egypt for help. Nebuchadnezzar gathered his army, and having defeated the Egyptians, marched against Jerusalem and besieged it again. And this is when he took it out, finally. So we have historical documentation that Israel was looking and looking and looking to Egypt for hope of someone to come in and overthrow their persecutor and their occupier, and it never came. How did they get here? misplaced hope. Instead of turning to God, they placed their hope in a nation and it failed miserably. And what do we place our hope in? What is it that we have our hope of that, that is going to solve our problems? Is it, is it more money? Is it income? Is it a job? Is it family? Is it relationships? What is it? I don't know what it is, but you know that. You know what is, is that, that source of hope in your life. I'm just telling you that the only source of hope in our life has to, can only be God. It could only be Christ. And so this is the answer to the question. How did we get here? Well, there was a lot of warnings that went ignored. There was ungodly leadership, and the hope was in all the wrong places. That's a recipe for disaster, and we can learn from that. But I told you there was a second question, and we're going to go through this very quickly. The second question is, so then, where's hope to be found? Because yet, true to the lament form, the poem does end with a hint of hope. And where can we find this hope at well, we see this in a couple of places. First of all, the equity of God's justice. What I want you to do is I want to look at verse 21. Verse 21, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. Right? He says that then in verse 22, Your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish, he will uncover your sins. And so there's inequity in God's justice so that he is right in dealing with all sorts of sin, not just the sins of the people of Israel here. So this goes back to uh, Genesis chapter 12. And when it says, when God says, I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's talking to Abraham here. When This is the beginning of the nation of Israel. He says, listen, if people support you, if people bless you, I'm going to bless you. If they curse you, if they go against you, I will curse them. And that is what happens here. And so the hint of hope here is that God's justice is he's not just uh, uh, indiscriminately against Israel here. He is against sin. And if there's a path out of sin, and there is, by the way, then we have no reason to fear. And that path, as we talked about last week, is repentance. And so he says that God's justice will be served there. I, I don't have time to turn there, but it, you know, it might be helpful. If you're taking notes, what I would do is I would write here, maybe write in the, in the margin of your Bible here, see Obadiah. Okay? If you read the minor prophet Obadiah, this is about this, where the prophet is talking about how God is going to judge Edom for how that they did not come to Israel's help, and they actually encouraged and tried to make sure that Israel got overthrown. And so Obadiah is all about this idea of Edom being judged here, the equity of God's justice. And not only the equity of it, but the completion of it. The completion of it. Verse 22, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, what does it say? Is what? It's accomplished. It's accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, it says. 
we could translate that in some ways it's complete. And what he's saying there in verse 11, he had said in the end of the first half, he says, full vent to his wrath. At the end of the, the, the poem in verse 22, he says, the punishment is complete. It's a beautiful thing when we think about, okay, that that you don't have to continue on and and thinking that God is going to do this forever, that there's going to be punishment forever here, that it is complete. But yet, it says he will keep you in exile no longer. But we know that they still stayed in exile for a long time. How do we reconcile that? Well, it's the same way we reconcile a statement that Jesus made on the cross. Because when it says here in verse 22, O daughter of Zion... The punishment is accomplished. You know a really good way to translate that is? It is finished. You remember Jesus on the cross? He says, it's finished. It's done. Now in that moment, in the moment right now where you and I live, we still deal with the effects of sin. We still deal with the curse, but we know it's finished. We know that Jesus is going to come back and set all things right. We know that he's accomplished everything that is necessary for forgiveness. We know that he has accomplished what needs to be done. That if we believe in him, we trust in him, we follow him, we can have salvation of sins. And we put all of our hope where? In the fact that Jesus said, it is finished. And so here when he says it's accomplished, he says it's finished. Now there's still going to be remnants while we're still on earth. We're still going to deal with the effects of this on earth, but eternally and positionally with God. And one of the things we're going to look at in two weeks here, we're going to look at this idea of peace with God. How is that even possible? It's possible because Jesus hung on the cross and he said, it is finished. And then he rose again. That's how it's possible. So here is where is hope to be found. The hope is to be found that God's punishment, it is accomplished. It is taken care of by the work of Christ on the cross for us. And so we talk about justification, that we're saved from the eternal penalty of sin. We talk about sanctification, how we're being saved currently from the, pro- the power of sin over our lives. And then ultimately glorification, how we will be saved from the presence of sin. So don't you see that sin has been dealt with? We must fully trust in Christ's obedience, death, and resurrection as payment for our sins. While we still deal with the remnants of sin's effects, we can embrace the hope that Christ is coming back. So again, the poet here, back in Lamentations 4, he wants us to know that sin is terrible, but he also answers the question of how Israel got there in that place of terrible judgment. And we'd be wise to learn from this poem. We cannot afford to ignore warnings in Scripture and what our conscience gives to us, what other godly people give to us. We have to follow godly leaders in our lives. Where's our source of hope? Do we see God's justice as good, and are we leaning only on Christ as a representative to bear God's judgment? This is a great book. It's a great chapter. First part's hard, hard to read. But then the second half says, okay, how do we get here, and where can we find hope?